Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, podcast? It's Corey from Best Served. This podcast is a clubhouse recording titled Future of Food and Beverage Think Tank. We have been through the boom times in food and beverage for the past 25 plus years. Now we're at a crossroads and the future is unsure. Our industry innovators will discuss where we go from here, from the current state of the industry, challenges we face, opportunities for change, and very practical steps, as well as resources that are available. Hope you enjoy. My name is uh, Chef Mimi Lan, and I'm excited to be here to listen and learn from these dynamic speakers on the topic of the future of food and beverage think tank. This room is recorded to be aired on Best Served Podcasts, and you could listen to the show this Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Right, Chef? Um, the link would be posted on Best of Podcast IG, or it can be found wherever you usually listen to your podcast. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. This room will last about one hour to an hour and 15 minutes. Um, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, Chef. Um, as you listen to anyone who resonates with you, follow and connect with each other, please bring in your friends in the room so they don't miss out. Uh, just tap on the plus sign at the bottom to invite more people into the room. And uh, we want to really thank Michael Wolf for, uh, for, for allowing us to, to um, host this room under your club food. Tech Live, so thank you so much, Michael. Of and, course. Uh, yeah, let's see what else. Uh, we'll start off with speakers sharing their viewpoint on the topic, and then we'll open the hand raising to let the audience share theirs. So um, this is an important topic, and we definitely, definitely have folks who are in the business to share their knowledge on this. And right now we're closing the hand raising feature but we'll open it up later after we've heard our speakers share. So for now, just sit back and enjoy the amazing conversation. And back to you, Jensen. Mimi is so great. Mimi's been uh, on vacation the last couple of weeks, so I had to host by myself. And I am, I'm just like a dog with a bone. I get so excited about the topic that I forget to set the room properly. So thank you for taking us through that. It's important for us to know what we're getting ourselves into yeah, future of food and beverage think tank, something so important. It's part of our series in collaboration with In the Weeds, the menu meeting fall 2021 campaign. We'll hear from El Jarvis from In the Weeds in a little bit. And I want to just kind of set the tone for what we're going to be talking about uh, today. When I think about this topic, I think about a quote from William Gibson, who said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And this quote motivates me and haunts me constantly because of three things that are character attributes that are some of my personal strengths and personal weaknesses. And I look through that lens and I know that other people who imagine the future also tend to, to thrive and struggle in this scenario. 
And number one is that I am such a futurist. I am always thinking about what's possible, which also means sometimes I'm not present. And I need to, we struggle with that. And I see that play out in food and beverage every day. Number two is that I'm a connector, always looking to connect people, always looking to host the room, to be able to bring like-minded people together, to be able to have this kind of discourse. It also means I spend so much time thinking about other people's shit that I forget that I need to sometimes focus on myself and be present once again. So I think that's an important aspect as well that I struggle with and that I am motivated by. And the third is that I'm a problem solver. I am so, so, so all about trying to solve the problems that create a better opportunity for interaction, interaction with ourselves, interaction with each other, interaction with our business, which also means I'm constantly trying to fix things that don't need fixing. And so I think so many people that think about the future sometimes have these same aspects in their mind. And so I really want to celebrate any of you who are, who are in the room right now. If you're listening on the podcast or the recording, get over to Clubhouse so you can be a part of these conversations live. And everybody here who's here to speak today, because you are my people. We are each other's people. We are trying and striving for something different, for something better, to continue to evolve, to learn from each other, to reflect on our past failures and successes and usher in something new that's meaningful, that galvanizes all of us. And those are the people that I'm looking to surround myself with. And I believe that all of you are as well. That's why you're here. I struggle often with people in this moment today, and I see it happening a lot where they say it's back to normal. And I could not want less of back to normal in my life. And so the opportunity that we have to speak about that, I'm grateful for that opportunity. So uh, Mimi's going to introduce the speakers quickly so we know who we're going to be hearing from. Uh, then we're going to kind of dive into four questions that framed up this conversation for me. I really want to understand the challenge, the biggest problem facing each of the panelists and then anybody who kind of comes up on stage as well. What are we trying to solve? What problem are we solving? What is the thing that, that keeps us up at night? So I'm interested in that. I want to ask all of the panelists to answer that specific question because I think it sets the table for what we're trying to accomplish here. And then I want to get into kind of understanding if we overcome these, what does that look like? Like paint a picture for us of what this future that we're trying to manifest, what does it look like, feel like, how does it affect the humans in hospitality that we're trying to be of service to? Third, I want to understand that, you know, we're breaking a lot of these old industry standards and especially our ability to pay for this future that we imagine. How are we shifting models? How are we shifting investment and focus and energy and resources? And finally, got to talk about tech. We're here on this platform putting out what we want to imagine the future is and want to understand how technology can be a part of that because in the food industry, we're so, we're so focused on making things with our hands. We, we're Luddites. We struggle sometimes with adopting technology, and it sometimes feels thrust upon us from outside, and we need to understand how we, we adopt and acknowledge and utilize technology to connect, to usher in this future. All right. That, that uh, hopefully sets the table for what we're going to be talking about. Appreciate everyone letting me rant for a moment. Uh, Mimi, you want to jump in and go ahead and uh, introduce our speakers? Yes. And, you know, I was listening to you uh, just introducing the room and I just got goosebumps listening to you. You just, I just can't, you know, say enough about the way you speak and the way you think. 
uh, I'm all over it. So thank you so much. And, um, you know, when I introduce everybody on stage, I'm going to uh, skip Elle because I will uh, let Elle introduce herself in the end. She's a VIP here and um, she can speak more about her organization in the week as well. And I will start first um, with uh, Corey. He's the content producer and video videographer, video editor extraordinaire at Best Served. Uh, you know, uh, you know, he is the person that we go to and make everything happen, um, recording and editing this whole segment to, uh, to, to make it more perfect and make sense. And so can't do it without him. Uh, Kiana Montgomery is an award-winning publicist with a passion for connecting clients with their target audiences. Um, serving nationwide clients. She specializes in various industries, including, but not limited to food and beverage, travel and tourism, healthcare and wellness, hospitality, nonprofit, and sustainability. Next, we have Troy Cooper. He's the CEO of the Kiwi Group of Companies, which includes Kiwi Restaurant Partners, uh, which is an emerging brand builder, and also Nourish, uh, which is a multi-brand cuisine concept that focus on regional, seasonal, and sustainable ingredients. And Nourish is also building the future of restaurants that are environmentally and socially conscious uh, with more accessibility uh, of interesting foods. Uh, if you just take a look at everybody's bios to find out more about them, because there's just so much to say about each of these uh, dynamic speakers, so I can just only uh, speak a few sentences about each one. Next, we have Troy Hooper. He's the CEO. Okay, I'm sorry. We've already done with that. Next, we have Zach Citrin. Uh, his background is in commercial real estate and retail and restaurants. He's worked with many breweries and restaurants and has transformed Denver into one of the best beer cities in the world. And then last but not least, we have Michael Wolf. Um, he's the founder of The Spoon, the creator of Smart Kitchen Summit. He's the host of the Food Tech Show podcast, as well as the admin of Food Tech Live Club on Clubhouse. Um, who's also hosting this room. He's always on the cutting edge of food innovation, and we're just honored to have him um, hosting this room and be a part of this room. I'm Chef Mimi, and I'm done speaking. Back to you, Chef Jensen. Mimi, I feel like I want you to voice my meditation app. <laughs> you have uh, the most soothing voice, and it is so fitting for Clubhouse. I am like spazzing oh, all the time so i don't you. know that i don't know that i have the best voice for clubhouse i get really amped up and and uh make microphones buzz and stuff but i appreciate you again for helping to set the tone uh for this conversation uh l wanted you to uh to introduce yourself and just take a moment and kind of let us know about uh about in the weeds most specifically right what we want to focus on is the future that we're ushering in we're going to talk about businesses we're going to talk about financials we're going to talk about real estate we're going to talk about tech Yet at the core of it, we're talking about humans. We're talking about people's experience and your work to support and champion 
the physical, financial, mental health of hospitality professionals is everything. It's the, it's the lifeblood mission of what we do at Best Served. So really honored to collaborate with you. But uh, introduce yourself and then, yeah, just set the tone a little bit for us on who we're trying to support here. Thank you, Jensen. Thank you, Mimi. And thank you, Best Served, for putting this amazing panel together um, for us to have these conversations. I'm so humbled and excited to be here in the room. My name is Elle Jarvis. I am the founder of In the Weeds, which is a national 501c3 public charity. Our mission is to champion the physical, financial, and mental health of the hospitality professional. And this was a project that I was working on pre-pandemic that obviously came to the front burner in March of 2020. Before the pandemic, I consulted for big brands in the culinary and adult bev space for consumer loyalty rewards. Um, So I put uh, these amazing bucket list adventures together that um, you know, specific car key holders or hotel um, members are able to use their points to come and experience. And um, post-pandemic, I moved home to the little seaside town where I grew up and I started chefing again and was like, oh my gosh, like I'm so far removed from the reality of the day-to-day. Um, but through the past year, In the Weeds really has identified that we cannot fill physical, financial, and mental health buckets to be sustainable unless all buckets are full. Um, When we think about humans in hospitality, uh, they are, as Jensen reminds me all the time, our greatest asset. And this conversation, I think, for me personally, um, is very timely um, when we start to think about, you know, the future of hospitality. We really don't have the luxury of time on our hands at the moment. We're 100% in a pivotal um, aspect or a historical moment in the restaurant industry where our generation is realizing that we don't want to work or it's not sustainable the way that our mentors worked or worked us. And the next generation are just blatantly refusing to work that way. They're saying, hey, adults, this ain't it. Um, we're not willing to work for, you know, unstable wages or not know what our schedule is going to be or not have benefits such as health care um, or paid time off if we're sick. So uh, I appreciate the idea of future building, um, and that is definitely a common topic within the weeds. Um, but I think, and I'll share share more as we get into the more con- the the greater conversation um i i feel as though these conversations the time is now you know for for us to be able to come out of these conversations with real tangible um you know provoking thoughts to be able to bring back to our teams um is just it it's telling to everybody in the room the testament and dedication that they have to the, the quality of life of our industry moving forward that's exactly it. The future is already here. It's here. It now, was yesterday, actually. Now, now let's <laughs> let's get it evenly distributed. These are yes. the, the leaders uh, in the room now and those listening, those that take the time and effort to be a part of something greater than themselves are the ones who recognize that the future is already here. We just need to shine a light on it. So let's, let's do that. Let's shine a light on it. I want to start. I'm going to kind of run it this way. I'm going to go around the table. And, uh, and have 
each of the speakers specifically answer question number one. What's that challenge that they're facing? What's the problem that they're solving? What's really, what, what's the thing in front of them, the obstacle that they're trying to, to overcome? Uh, and then I'll go into these other questions and we'll open it up a little bit more popcorn style so that uh, speakers can kind of just jump in and uh, we can have a little bit of banter, a little bit of conversation uh, that way. But let's start with, uh, with this first question and, uh, and go around the room a little bit. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, Kiana, why don't you start? Because you're thinking very macro. You're thinking about the stories, the human aspect, right? We have to invest in our most valuable asset, our people, the stories that we tell and our ability to get those stories out there is fundamental. You know that the, the media focus attention that I have right now is so about shifting this narrative, including more voices. The problem that you're trying to solve, what is that? What's the big thing in front of you? Set the tone for us there. Of course. Thanks, Jensen. I want to take two seconds for um, the team that curated this table. It's so diverse. Um, it looks like you covered your bases every for every industry as far as focused on the food and beverage industry. Um, right now, as far as communications, I think the the uphill battle that we have right now is similar to a lot of industries, which is gatekeeping. Um, the powers that be, the people who hold the keys, kind of already have their favorites. They're, they're, um, they're people that are their spokespeople, and that's who they want to stick with. When there's so many different stories to tell, there's so many different stories that matter. And um, I think as part as a publicist is, you know, we're trying to position difference. Yeah, difference could be a benefit to everyone, and different stories, and and you know, making sure everyone can see themselves in different stories is important right now. But I think also putting the onus on the industry, but twofold the onus on the audiences because they are they're only giving the audience what they want to read. So if we're raising our hand and asking for, you know, other stories and, you know, maybe reaching out to the the outlets via social media, like, hey, this is a great story, but I know about this great chef in my own community you should reach out to. Understand that the power is in the hands of the consumer. And I think that may be the most important message for 2022. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah, thank you for that. We we need to start to value the stories and the people behind those stories. And I, we're going to, you're going to hear a lot more of this from us. Like the media landscape is pretty shattered. And so even just the investment that the media makes into its own people to allow great stories, to be able to unfold and be shared is completely backwards. The amount of money, we'll talk about money a little bit. I know you have some ideas there, Kiana is I don't, I don't. I understand now how media works, and it's not surprising to me that all media has time to do is put together listicle after listicle, and we need to shift that narrative. And it's going to come into investment, but first it, it comes into a mindset of understanding that more stories matter. So thank you so much for that, uh, Troy. Have you jump in? You're thinking about this through the lens of of developing emerging new business models, which I think is something we absolutely need to do. The restaurant business model has not fundamentally changed in over half a century. There's just been these micro adjustments and kind of trend setting, but that's not a new fundamental model. So you're thinking about that. You're also thinking through the investment lens as well. So number one challenge in front of you, what's that obstacle? Uh, yeah, thanks, Jensen. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity and I am definitely honored to be on stage with this class of group of folks that you've curated. Um, you know, for me, it does go back to the people because technology, robotics, venue models, uh, 
te you know, technology in the kitchen changing, all of that is really technical and tactical. If at the end of the day, we can't solve for the way we treat people and we view folks who give us the gift of their time and more importantly, the gift of their energy, enthusiasm, uh, willingness to learn and willingness to share, uh, we really have nothing left. And, and you know, I'm by labor department report that 7% left the reality is uh, in the consulting side of our business is convincing folks and owners and operators and chefs that humans are not tools, they're people, and that an investment in that person and an allowance and an empowerment, an invitation for you to have your people invest in you, treat them with dignity and respect and invite them, empower them, pull them, survey them, take advantage of the talents and interests that they have to do the things that you would have to pay for to, to industry, to tech, you know, technology, invite folks to the table and have a team in your business. And what I'm concerned about is now the jadedness of we can't find anybody, we can't find anybody. Once we get them, they're probably not going to stick around. And it's sort of this downward spiral of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy that really concerns me. So I'm really trying to spend a lot of time expressing the importance of investment in the humans and, a re and an empowerment to allow those humans to invest in your business. And that will be a differentiator because so few to know are doing it that certainly you will stand out and get acknowledgement and certainly customer acquisition and loyalty. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for that, Troy. You know, it's something I've been trying to understand for myself as we've been reinventing the, the very P&L that restaurants use because it fundamentally doesn't work for restaurants. And when we're looking at these line items, I realized that the only asset that you have in a business, especially in food and beverage, that will never depreciate in value and the investment you make in it is your humans, is your people. Every other, every piece of equipment, even technology, all of it will depreciate in value and the return on investment. Yet you look at Deloitte has multiple studies on it. You look at every dollar that you put into a human, it always will appreciate in value exponentially often. So appreciate you pointing that out as an investment. Zach, Zach, want to have you jump in looking through that lens of, of real estate. We know brick and mortar is changing. We know that the, 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 3,500 to 5,000 square foot, you know, progressive high-end menued chef-driven restaurant that I came up in and so many of us did is changing and shifting. So tell us a little bit, what's the number one obstacle that's facing you and, and potential operators, current operators, when it comes to kind of the real estate, the, uh, the brick and mortar side of the industry? Yeah. First of all, thanks so much for having me, Jensen. Uh, real honored to be part of this group. So my biggest challenge right now is finding downtown landlords willing to, you know, look past someone's balance sheet and give a, a chef an opportunity. Um, I, I work with local mom pop uh, restaurants, 
breweries, coffee shops, bars. Um, and, you know, I'm not working with the Chipotle's of the world. I'm working with a local chef who doesn't have half a million dollars to build out a space. And for example, I, I have a, a Thai restaurant who it's uh, awesome people. You know, they, they, they moved here from Thailand. It's authentic. The food is amazing. The people could not be nicer. They're hungry. They're passionate. Everything you'd be looking at in a successful restaurateur just found them a great space downtown. And uh, yesterday, the ownership told me that uh, they don't want to do our deal because my client doesn't have a, a net worth of over a million dollars. And uh, it's just really, uh, really tough and really discouraging when, you know, you're dealing with um, a big corporate landlord out of California or New York who's never going to come to Denver and meet the people that make it happen. And they just have these checks and balances. And if, you know, someone's net worth isn't over a million dollars, they, they don't want to do the deal. And it, it is a real problem that, you know, a lot of spots um, downtown are so hard for, um, for these great chefs to get into. And to a point where I feel like I live downtown and if I want to get great Indian, Ethiopian, Asian food, I got to go out to Aurora. So I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head about how do I solve this problem? What steps do we take? But um, it's, it's a big one. Yeah, thank you for that, Zach. Uh, you know, one of the unique things about the restaurant industry that I try and remember, breweries are like this as well. Very few businesses are actually two different businesses under one roof. We're in manufacturing and we're in retail sales. And the way that that dynamic goes is you put the, the shoe boutique to sell high-end shoes in the downtown corridor at $55 a square foot triple net, but you wouldn't put the shoe factory. Yet sometimes we're, we're doing that in restaurants. And so there's a struggle there with the economics of it. And I know that uh, I was guilty of this so often as a chef. Being the chef owner, our kitchens got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we spent more and more money there. And the reality is you make money in the dining room, the retail side. So I think there's some interesting things happening in real estate there. And I know we'll dig into some of those in a little bit as well. Uh, Michael, for you, thinking about the, uh, the tech side of this, uh, what I'm interested in, same thing. What's the, what's the number one challenge? What are you facing specifically with, uh, with the food industry? Yeah, so I come at it maybe from a little bit different angle. I'm basically a media and analyst person trying to tell the stories of people in this space largely through a technology lens. And when we started doing this five, six years ago, we were really probably one of the first full-time media publications looking at food tech. Now it's getting more crowded. So one of the challenges for me is trying to, there's just a lot of people pitching their stories, trying to find the interesting and, and authentic stories that need to be told um, and get move away from commodity journalism. Like you said, listicles, we're trying to like kind of look and report deeply on the stuff with regards to restaurant tech. Um, I think that one of the things I'm really interested in and thinking a lot about lately is how these new technology driven platforms and then the subsequent business models, which ones will have staying power over time. Right. So what I mean by that is things like there's a huge, uh, uh, a lot of excitement in the tech press about things like ghost kitchens and virtual restaurants. And, and I'm actually wondering how much of these, um, these companies spinning out of this, the restaurants being launched, the virtual brands will actually be around in a couple of years. Um, it's exciting as an opportunity for restaurant owners to maybe have the opportunity to have new distribution channels for their food. 
um, spin up a virtual brand, offer a new kind of menu. But, you know, when I look at like a Mr. Beast Burger and see 300 restaurants, uh, 300 offerings in different cities for Mr. Beast Burger, and the reviews aren't that great, I'm just wondering what that ultimately, ultimately means over time. We're starting to see some consolidation in the, in the virtual ghost kitchen space. So uh, just trying to uh, write about this, this market truthfully and kind of cut through the hype. Appreciate that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of hype. We've created a hype monster in and of ourselves. It was, it was a challenge, I think, sometimes for the technology. I mentioned us being Luddites, but also we struggle with the fact that we were outcasts when we started. We were, you know, Bourdain's pirates on the pirate ship. And then we became the cool kids. And I did not know how to handle that. I very much struggle with that. And I know a lot of us did. We didn't understand the value of what we actually had and what we were actually creating. It wasn't the burger. It wasn't the food. It wasn't the Mr. Beast burger that was the value that we were bringing. Yet so much of it got focused on the food that we forgot about the human aspect in and of ourselves as well. And then now we're the establishment. And to Elle's point, kids these days, in big air quotes, are the greatest opportunity we have for success. Not lazy, not entitled, not this or that. They're the opportunity that we have because they're thinking differently. Because their future is here now. We're just standing in the way. So our job is to usher that in. So I can, uh, I can appreciate that for sure. Uh, L, number one problem facing you right now. What is it? Yeah, so I think I can compartmentalize this. So for In the Weeds, I think we thought we were really cute with our mission statement identifying three buckets (laughs) and sticking in those three lanes, but those three buckets encompass everything. Um, So we quickly had to realize that we um, had to diversify our our board of directors. Um, So we have somebody who represents the adult bev space. We have somebody who is very steeped in advocacy and equity work. Um, uh, We have a a, a biofarms tech startup former nurse on our board. Uh, We have a executive director of a huge festival in New Mexico. And so we really had to round out our board to be able to tackle all the things that in the weeds are focused on. Um, But for me personally, top of mind, as it pertains to, you know, humanizing the work experience in the industry for me, it's the grind culture. Um, That's one thing that I've been talking about, um, you know, internally in my small, in my smaller groups of, you know, how do we as the future leaders or the leaders of the industry at this moment, take a step back and um, think about working differently and creating more safe spaces um, for, for workers Um, and not only our employees as leaders, but each other and ourselves. Um, and I had mentioned or alluded to this uh, previously that this is very timely. I had a very physical situation happen on Sunday, um, but I was in the middle of three events um, simultaneously happening. And instead of seeking medical attention, I grind like I grinded through it. And as somebody who has been so conscious about um, championing mental health in our industry and recognizing burnout and the importance of taking time and space for yourself and rest um, to not get to a, a place mentally that's not sustainable. I think there's a lot of unlearning as well um, in recognizing 
your physical well-being through this industry because we can't take care of anybody else if we're not taken care of. Um, and for in the weeds, the you know that third event on Sunday was an in the weeds event that imploded. And I am so grateful for the partners and the people. Um, who are on this journey with us that allow that space to say, okay, you know what? We've been talking about this. This really isn't it. We really have to figure out um, how to make the industry more sustainable and give people more space and time to take care of themselves um, outside of you're not as good as your next plate and the show must go on and the guest is always right and you can't let your team down. Um, because you you don't mean anything for your team if you are down <laughs> and you're out. So that's that's my biggest um, top of mind discussion at the moment is just grind culture at large and how do we unlearn it and how do we rewrite it? Oh, I know it well. Appreciate that. We uh, we talk about that a lot for sure. You and I and, and so many others. We have to figure out how to invest in ourselves so that we can invest in each other so appreciate that all right uh thank you everybody like really really good to understand what we're all going through we get so siloed we get so tunnel vision we think we're always on our own we have that hustle and and to l's point that grind mentality and thinking about how we come together how we understand each other's journeys how we connect to each other's journeys to then be able to do something differently and be able to have that rising tide so that to Zach's point, I think all of our points, like our net worth together cannot be matched, right? That one individual that has the net worth and the worth being dollars or the worth being attention graph or the worth being whatever that worth is, our cumulative worth cannot be touched. When we talk about essential workers, we call them indispensable because they are the epicenter of culture and commerce in any given community. And the understanding of that, this is the number one challenge that I'm facing. I spend most of my time convincing people from line cooks in Kansas City to, to chefs in New Hampshire, to a school garden leader in Tampa, Florida, to a bartender in Boston, that their story matters, that it has worth and value, that I want to hear it, that other people want to hear it, and that it can add to the cumulative narrative that is theirs, that is ours, it's the number one challenge I face because everybody has so much self-doubt because we've been told we're not good enough. You're only worth $12 an hour. You're only as good as your next plate. Smile as part of your uniform. Leave your shit at the door. And we wonder why our most valuable potential asset doesn't see their own potential, let alone the potential we see in them, let alone the potential that a business might need of them to be able to to thrive. That's the challenge that I'm facing. That's what I'm working towards. I want to go around and have people jump in. So a little bit of of etiquette kind of here. Uh, Take a look at your screen if you're going to unmute. Please, I'm going to ask a question. Anybody jump in unmute let's let's create a little bit of banter let's let's riff off of each other a little bit i want to see uh, everyone be able to jump in if you see somebody else unmute before you go ahead and just uh just yield to them and i'll keep an eye out too and, and make sure and come back to you uh if you don't get to speak and uh, before that though amimi you want to go ahead and reset the room here for us yes you're just reading my mind i want to make sure that um we reset the room and let people uh, who just came into the room know what we are talking about. Um, the topic of the room is about the future of food and beverage, which is hosted under Food Tech Live Club. So please 
click on that greenhouse above to become a member so you can be notified of rooms like this in the future. This topic is so, so important. I mean, like, who's not interested in the future of food and beverage? I'm taking notes and I'm listening actively because being a chef and a foodie, I want to know what's the future of our food industry. Uh, I'm Chef Mimi Lan, and I would like to remind you all that this room is being recorded and will be aired on Best Served Podcast this Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. So if you don't want to be um, uh, recorded, uh, please don't come on stage. But everybody else, please raise your hand. Um, we're, we're having our moderators sharing their viewpoints. Uh, I don't know if anyone uh, wants to share some more, but um, we're now opening the hand raising. Um, so, uh, you know, you're more than welcome to come on stage, ask questions, or share your viewpoint. Um, I have something um, to share if we don't have anyone on stage, if that's okay with you, Jensen? Yeah, please jump in. Amy. All right. So, um, we know there's a lot of changes in the food and beverage industry, but I would like to know the future of consumers, like how consumers uh, should act with the changes as well. Like in the past, uh, we were used to going out to unwind, right, to treat ourselves uh, by going to a restaurant after working hard all week, and we were used to being waited on. Uh, we're not used to the changes in the, in the industry, so the short-staffed, um, and, you know, that is going on, you know, just kind of forces us to be more patient, to be more understanding that, yes, although we'll, we've worked hard and have a right to expect good service uh, when we go out, but also understand that times have changed and that restaurants are short-staffed and we need to not expect things to be the same as before. So is this a temporary thing uh, or is this a catalyst? To what we should expect in the future and that's open to all of the moderators who want to just jump in and let me know your thoughts so it's awkward being the first one to jump in uh so here's what i i would say at the at the highest highest level is the responsibility of restaurants has been getting exposed as not being the guest always comes first uh, it's, it has to be the employee, the team, the, the worker comes first because of the fact that your job is to create an environment that they can thrive in personally and professionally. And we see right now one of the things that's happening is we talk, I mentioned entitlement earlier. We as a, as a dining culture have absolutely shown that we, we have a lot of entitlement and expectation that may or may not be realistic or sustainable. So I think that's one of the shifts of understanding the value that food actually has and dining, how much it means to us culturally. And we have to invest in that. The United States, we as, as a culture, as a community, spend less on food as a percentage of our income than almost any other country in the world, industrialized country in the world, which means that we don't value food to the degree that other cultures do. And I think our dining culture sometimes represents that. So I think there's a big reckoning happening for consumers and hopefully through the development of new models and, and investing in people that there isn't this quote unquote short staffed and labor shortages that we can create a different environment on both sides of the equation. But please, somebody else jump in. 
So this is L. I think there is actually a responsibility. Yeah, I'm happy public. to jump in. Oh. oh, go ahead, Troy. No, go ahead, L. Sorry. I'll be quick. I just have two notes, and these are conversations that we're having on a national level. One, it is going to be the responsibility of the consumer to use their pockets as purchasing power to support the independent restaurants that are actually doing the work and creating the safe and equitable spaces. So consumers, if they want that experience that they're used to, do the research and support the employers that are doing the work and that their restaurants are the future, which are now. The other point is we need support from the media. The narrative needs to shift from restaurants are horrible and nobody wants to work there and everybody's lazy to highlighting and amplifying the voices of those independent restaurants who have figured out the, the labor models, who have bridged the gap between the front and the back of the house, who have figured out health care, who have figured out maternity and paternity leave. Those are the stories we need to be seeing in the media um, in order to shift that consumer perspective. Hey, everyone, it's Orlando down here at the bottom. Uh, may, I, may I add something? Is that okay with everybody? Please do. All right, so I'm thinking of the question that was asked, right? And I'm, and I'm listening to the responses. And there, some of the responses have been geared like towards the restaurant industry. And I like to step out of the whole entire industry itself and look at at commerce and, and consumerism in the United States, and not only the United States, but globally, right? And there was a point in time where, as a restaurant, guests, customers, would go in to look for an experience. And thinking of all the, all, all the backing of the ships in California that's happening, that has led from, from a lot, there's a huge pivot that the United States has made that has gone to from searching for experience to searching for service. And we started to see that in the industry, right? And, 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 and because people are starting to realize, hey, I don't need to go to a sit-down restaurant just to go enjoy a meal. I can have it being delivered to me. And we've seen that with all these meal prep delivery systems. We've seen that with Whole Foods. I'm consulting for a three, a big market, a restaurant market food market here in um, Florida that they competed with Whole Foods, essentially. And I think that this is the trend that we're going to. I don't think that is going to, we are going to go back to what it was because people are realizing that the most valuable thing that they have is time. And I don't have time to go spend, drive, find parking, sit down, wait for somebody to wait on me, wait for my meal to come to me. I can just order something at the click of a button through my phone. So, that that's one thing that I that, that I that I notice when it comes to consum consumers in the United States and probably worldwide as a whole. Orlando, I appreciate that. Zach, I actually wanted to come over to you because some of what we're talking about right now, the the canary in the coal mine sometimes is where is the money going? Where are the spaces? What's getting built? Are are existing infrastructures being torn down or being being rethought? What do you see there from this kind of broader aspect of, of retail? of restaurants and, and how the brick and mortar is going to play a role in that. Yeah, sure. Um, and Orlando, just to address your comment real quick, I really think it depends on the consumer. Like for me personally, I, 
you know, get, getting food fast isn't the most important thing for me. Like uh, we were talking about after a long work day, I love going and sitting down and being waited on and having a, a bartender, a waiter who uh, remembers me and knows my order already and, you know, adds that customer service. That for me is way more valuable than, than getting food quickly. Um, I went to Bar Taco last weekend um, in Lohi. The food was really good, but they started this new implement. They implemented a new system where you download an app and everything you want to order, you go on your phone and, and you, uh, you order on your phone and a waitress or waiter brings it to you. And it kind of killed the restaurant experience for me. You know, it, it felt like, you know, if I'm, if I'm ordering on my phone anyways, I might as well be at home doing Grubhub. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a, a little bit of a generalization to, to say that people now just care about speed and getting it faster at the click of the button and the whole experience is going away. I, you know, I, I, I really value that experience and most of my best memories in my life came at really cool restaurants or breweries or coffee shops. And I, I mean, I want to continue building the city with those type of places that really add character. So I, I mean, I, I agree that there's problems. It's tough to hire people want, you know, people, what people want changes. But I think that, that, um, COVID made it even more amplified it even more that they want the experience and, you know, places with patios, they were exploding during COVID. You know, I, I, I think when you're cooped up inside your house, you could really, um, you really miss those little, those little details that, that make a, your favorite restaurant, your favorite restaurant. Zach, can I chime on that? Just for one second. Yeah, well, I want to I kind of move this conversation forward and like really, really focus down and, and make sure everybody gets some time. So uh, I do want to move on from this. Uh, I want to uh, I want to understand just again, we know that certain things are broken. We know that certain things are in motion, but I want to understand what are the things in action that are happening on anybody's given plate that allow us the opportunity to actually manifest what we're imagining. And so I want to think about that lens. For example, very practically for me, the focus point that we have uh, in my role in Best Served is to focus on the media. How do we get more stories out there? So one very specific thing that we're doing right now that is helping to manifest that is we have something going called the 866886 Challenge. We're publishing 86 articles in 86 days and paying a writer $86 for their story. And Ellen in the Weeds is helping. They're writing checks every single week to these authors, because that is allowing us the opportunity to do two things, right? We've mentioned, Orlando, you even mentioned, I think, and, and it's been mentioned multiple times, the media presence to be able to break through the noise is fundamentally important. So we're shifting the narrative of who gets to be a part of media, who gets to be telling stories. And number two, we're investing in that. $86 happens to be more Unfortunately, the most media professionals get paid for a lot of those listicles. 50 to $75 to pump out some kind of 250-word piece is an industry standard that is fundamentally broken. That, to me, is manifesting a new reality. That, to me, is ushering in future. So I want to hear from everybody, what is that? What is that tactical, practical thing that you are bringing forward that is proof of concept that there is a different way 
to do things. Uh, want to have you know speaker jump in and mention that yeah. Betty, Monty, Michael, Tamisha, Chip, see all of you here as well. Want you to be able to kind of ask questions and, and contribute as well. I wanted to get that part of the conversation. What's something that you all are working on? Troy, you had unmuted earlier. We kind of jumped past. Do you want to jump in here? Yeah, and, and that, that point I was going to make was well covered. Essentially, at the end of the day, the mediocre middle is in great danger uh, and, and experiences um, a great experience. Um, what we're doing, um, technology and new age resources to engage with the employees to help them craft our story, help them tell our story, um, but but they have to really understand what our story is. And so we're using technology. Hey, Troy, you're, you're breaking up real bad, man. The robots are, are failing you. I think uh, I think we're going to have to come back to you. Wanna, I want to jump. Uh, anybody else, please jump in. Sorry, Troy. I can jump in here. Please do. Um, I did want to, for the original question, I think Elle's points were absolutely perfect. Um, I do have a couple of points. I think the actionable items that we have moving forward are it's on everybody's plate as far as consumers, the industry, and the media. Consumers, we have to go in and with the with the lens of humanity and understand that just how we're all at our desk and may be overwhelmed, so are the people within the restaurant in industry. For restaurants, um, I'm also taking the time to educate my clients on the fact that, you know, when I walk into a restaurant, I see 20 tables open and only two, you know, waiters or waitresses or staff there. I understand that they're under service, but to a, a consumer who may not have worked in the industry, they see 20 tables. Why am I not being seated? So it may be um, on the restaurant's aim to, you know, employ their staff to say, unfortunately, we're a little bit staff, understaffed. You know, you may get seated a little bit later. Um, you know, the, the kitchen is moving as quickly as it can. We thank you for your patience. Media, actionable steps in as far as how I pitch my clients and how the angles are going, we have to make sure we're not just glazing over the, the, the issues and not just glazing over what COVID-19 did to not just the restaurant industry, but everyone. And it's, of course, everybody wants a feel-good story and wants to focus on, you know, what we can do to push for it. But it's important to also, you know, live in the reality of what is now. And right now, the industry and everybody else, is, you know, a lot of people need a mental break. And going to a restaurant and demanding and demanding and demanding, it, it gets you nowhere fast. So I think it's, it's, a, it's on everyone's shoulders to make sure everyone within the industry and outside are looking through the same lens. Appreciate that. Michael, want to give you a, a chance to jump in. I haven't heard from you in a minute. Something very specific that you're working on that you see happening, something that we can sink our teeth into and say that. That's a model towards the future that we're, we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're at a time where it's both exciting and, and potentially scary for operators and restaurant entrepreneurs. Um, I wrote a story about two weeks ago about the startup called uh, Pizza HQ. And they're basically uh, a, a guy, there's, they're operating a, re, a pizza restaurant, uh, one restaurant in New Jersey. And, and they, they're, they're at a crossroads. They said, should we continue to invest in this single location or should we invite, invest in, and build an entirely new model built around 
automation and ghost brands and ghost kitchens, et cetera. And they opted to do that. So they're basically building um, this centralized production factory with like six uh, um, pizza robots from a company called Picnic, a startup based out of Seattle. And they have a plan to basically blanket the entire kind of metro New Jersey area with this new approach. And then they want to eventually take on venture capital to expand. And so this is an existing pizza restaurant entrepreneur who basically said, hey, we're going to go full bore into technology. Um, so so I look at that two ways. Right? It, it's exciting uh, for them to kind of embrace technology. It's also like that type of model may be out of reach for like a lot of like smaller operators. Um, so it's just such a really interesting time to see the stories of people trying to think about the future and what things like automation and new technologies mean to them and which way they're going to go. Yeah, I think the answer is not one or the other or in any of this. It's usually both. The answer is usually both. So like the ability to have a diverse offering while staying focused on what you do. Diverse offering doesn't mean having a menu with 112 items on it. We did that. That did not work either. It's hyper-focused, yet your ability to have nuance within the business model, within the stories that you tell, within the communities that you serve, I think are, are, are very interesting. And that, there's a lot of space there uh, that I think we can kind of explore. I uh, want to pop down to a couple of people we invited up on, on stage here. I kind of just go in order. Uh, Tamisha, I want to jump in and, uh, and maybe ask a question or, or give a little context to the conversation here. Hey, great day, you guys. This is, let me tell you, when I saw this room, I was like, heck yeah, this is my place to party. So I popped on in and I'm so glad I did. I'm I'm Tamisha. I am a a co-founder of a restaurant delivery service. So I know you guys kind of love and hate us, (laughs) but we are a necessary evil. Most people, you know, most of the restaurants use the DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats. But I, for one, urge you to find the local restaurant delivery services in your cities. Um, Our commissions are going to be way less because we understand that your your profit level already is very low. But then, you know, we do more in the community, so we have a different type of customer. We have a customer that don't mind... Um, paying more for for the experience okay so you know to the point somebody up here said hey you know um you know they still like to go to restaurants and eat and stuff like that but when it comes to the people that use our platforms the gen x and the um and the um the the, well, the gen z and the gen x they uh, they're not necessarily using it for the experience. They're using it as a necessity. They don't know what a stove is, okay? They don't care about the kitchen. They could just have an apartment with no kitchen, and it would be okay as long as they can get their delivery. So I think you guys definitely you know, need to make sure that um, you include us in the strategy, and that's what I really wanted to come in here to see, too, is like how are you including the restaurant delivery portion in the strategy? And, making, and, and I will share this secret, too. Because um, we're getting ready to launch in in the Atlanta area, and most of the local delivery services now, we all have a way of being able to deliver your your, um, DoorDash, Grubhub, and Uber Eats order, saving you about 50% of the commissions that you pay to those platforms. And not only that, you get to... um, to, 
experience building a relationship with the local delivery service. You know these uh, the, the drivers. You know the pe- you know the people that own the restaurant delivery companies. You can call them. You can text us. And then not only that, we know we normally have about a one hundred percent rate of picking up every order that is placed with you. So you know you can still get the volume that you get from the DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats of the world. But if but if if you allow us to deliver those, you cut your you know you cut your cost and have and then you know exactly who's delivering your food so um, I just wanted to kind of get some conversation around what you guys feel about delivery I know firsthand talking to different my different restaurant partners they hate them but when they find out about me and they find out that we're local we kind of turn that hate into love yeah I want to I want to paint a picture for for what what it means to be a part of hospitality quickly because I think no matter the nuance if it's talking about uh, the shift that Orlando mentioned, uh, or any of these shifts, or towards or away from delivery, none of that matters. Like it matters the stories that we tell and the sense of belonging that we create. So Zach's sense of belonging is centered around belly up to a bar. That makes sense to me. Somebody else else's sense of belonging is being able to have something besides shitty Chinese and pizza cold in their home. And so being able to understand all of our expectation of what creates a sense of belonging for us and has us feel that we are a part of something at being nourished and fed because food goes here or having an experience or having the service that we need. So I think it's important for us to understand that. When I think about the storytelling that's happened, because here's the thing in restaurants, restaurants have not done a better job of storytelling than somebody who's carry out and delivery only. And I think the opportunity might be higher for having somebody in front of you and creating that experience. Yet, if you're all focused on creating those moments for people and being of service in that way, it shifts. So when I think about carry-on delivery, the number one thing that I'm telling all operators is you still need to storytell. Yes, you need to figure out the to-go. Yes, you need to figure out to-go boxes and packaging. You need to figure out all those things with the storytelling. So the number one thing I'm telling to get them to understand that carry-on delivery is of value is if somebody's willing to bring their brand into your home, you should celebrate that, not demonize it. You gotta figure out the details, but the number one thing that you can do to storytell, to connect to that, is telling everybody, QR codes, NFCs, you need to have that QR code that somebody can, can click on their phone, it's native in everybody's camera app now, and it takes them to a video, maybe one of two videos, and if you have smart QR codes, you can send them to alternating videos. And what you do is you say, thank you so much for ordering from DoorDash or wherever you did from. And just so you know, as small independent operators, it is so valuable for us to be able to connect even more closely to you. And if you ever were to come directly to our website and order and use our last mile solution or one of the local vendors that uh, we use for care and delivery, it would really mean the world to us. And that creates a relationship and understanding in the consumer. The other thing is create a video. Like, tell them how to plate your dish. Deconstruct that burger. And the number one complaint right now on to-go food is soggy bun in burger and soggy french fries. It's the number one, number one complaint of all the complaints. So deconstruct those things. Change the narrative. Change the interaction. Right? Be a connector, even though you may not have that button seat. So that's, that's what I'd say on, on that front for sure. I uh, want to keep this conversation going again. I want to figure out the things that we manifest. I want 
to talk a little bit. We touched on investment. Want to talk about the technologies, and I appreciate kind of the things that, that we're touching on there. Uh, want to come back to the speakers for a moment. Anybody else want to add some context? Otherwise, Betty, Monty, Michael, Chip, I do want to give you a moment. But uh, L, uh, yeah, jump in, L, please. Yeah, I think this conversation is so interesting because everybody is looking at the industry from a completely different aspect, a completely different revenue stream, a completely different space. Um, but at the end of the day, we really are all humans serving humans. And I think as we continue to have these conversations, there is no answer for everybody. And that's a really powerful thing that we're in right now. I have some friends who just took over their parents' family restaurant before the season. They completely renovated. I went in. It's absolutely gorgeous. And the gross salad bar is in the middle of the dining room. And I was like, homies, you just put all this money <laughs> into this restaurant and you put that disgusting salad bar back in. And they're like, yeah, we can't take it out for five to seven years. And I was like, explain that to me. They're like, our lunch crew have, have retired, and this is their retirement community, and they spend the summer here together. They all show up at 1130 for their social hour to drink their Chardonnay would revolt if we took the salad bar out. And it was such a humanizing experience. It wasn't about driving revenue. It wasn't about, you know, building the restaurant of the dreams. It was continuing to keep up with the demands of the community that was shifting while fostering the relationship of the community that have kept them in business for so long. So when we have these conversations, do we do takeout? Do we do delivery? Well, it depends on what's best for you and your community and your restaurant and your revenue streams. Do we do use this app? Do we use that app? It depends on your community. Um, one thing that we have conversations a lot, are there cell phones on the floor? Are there not cell phones on the floor? We all live in two worlds right now. We live in the world that is our community that we see every day. And we live in the internet as well. So I think as we have these conversations and we try to figure out, you know, what is the future and what does it look like? We have to really give each other the space and agency to understand that there's no blueprint for, for every food and bev business nationwide. Respect. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right. I want to get a couple more uh, of those we invited up on stage. Betty, uh, something to, uh, to ask of the moderators that we can maybe yeah. jump into? Yeah. Thanks so much, um, Jensen. I um, wanted, There's a couple of things that uh, came up for me, but in terms of what I have put in to you know, move this conversation about the restaurant industry into the future, um, you know, I've worked in uh, my own restaurants. I own my own restaurants. I was a pastry chef years and years of being in this industry and really before the pandemic was committed to creating better leadership within the, the service industry, just really feeling that people's lack of um, you know, being able to communicate well with each other um, creates a, 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 something of a toxic environment. And so I do, um, I, I do coaching and, and consulting on leadership and communication and culture building. And uh, one of the things that, uh, came, that came up for me during this time is that you know, most restaurants do not have their own human resource department. They don't have any access to a, anyone within the um, organization to really uh, support employees and what they're dealing with or having conversations that are tough. 
Um, and I'm creating my business as a, as an access to that, to be able to be hired out by restaurateurs who really want a third party to be able to help them navigate some of these, these issues, um, around communication and leadership in their space. Um, and also create resources for employees who, who are really struggling. What, 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 where can they go and how can they get help? Um, because that's, it's also a big, big issue. Um, I wanted also to address the, the real estate issue because, you know, I owned my own business for, uh, over 10 years, uh, two different businesses and lost my lease. Um, and, and what I got was that, um, my space was really a community space. I owed it to my community once I opened my doors to operate with integrity in all areas. And when I started doing consulting work, that was my goal is to create, to help other restaurateurs create integrity around their bookkeeping and their finances, integrity around their human resources, integrity around, um, you know, every aspect of their business so that they could operate better. And, and that I think is, is really key. Um, anyway, that, that's all I have to say. My name is Betty. Yeah, Zach, maybe jump in, uh, kind of alluded to real estate and, uh, the spaces that we've been talking about. What's, uh, how do we get that tie operator to be able to have their location? How do we get them to be able to have their downtown location and a ghost kitchen concept uh, in a ghost kitchen hub, something like that. How do we develop them? What is it going to take? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's going to take people being, being open to, uh, you know, seeing past someone's balance sheet and really looking at the person and what they're trying to do and the concept and the vision. I mean, Denver is such a new city. Um, and I know a lot of, the best food cities like Chicago and New York, they have these places that are, that are such institutions and, and, you know, have, have been there for 50 to a hundred years and, and they're never going to grow. They just do that one thing and do it really well. And I, I, I think that, you, you know, because Denver is so new and it, it's growing so fast, especially in the last few years, people are, are kind of thinking how are we going to grow the city? And, and I think what's really going to make these changes is, is when people kind of grow. Yeah. Cho choose the people instead of, you know, the, the concept that's already in 50 other locations, Cho choose the, the person that's trying to do one thing and one thing really well to, to give them a shot. And I, I think, I think it's going to pan out, but I think it's just takes some, some convincing on the front end. And, and I think, um, we all, we all could kind of benefit from, from, uh, helping that cause. Yeah. I think this comes to investment. There, there needs to be a shift in, in what we value and the investment that we're making. And so being able to talk to investors and, and we'll be digging into this more. You can look out for this, looking at, uh, equity, crowdfunding, looking at private investment, investment, looking at institutional money. There's there's different nuance to the way that we position our businesses and the way that we're building business models, financial models. All of that's going to shift so that you can clearly articulate the value that you're bringing 
and that needs to both be on paper and intangible. And the ability to sell the intangible, that's going to be the breakthrough that I see most for, for the, kind of that segment uh, for sure. All right, we've got a couple more people that jumped up on stage uh, to, to kind of ask some questions, add some context. Jensen, before, before, we, before we move on, I have a question for Zach. So one of our um, new board members, uh, she's based in Brooklyn, and her job is the community restaurant liaison for the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce, um, which has been really interesting um, to be able to have, you know, boots in the ground for in the weeds in in Brooklyn, which is such a robust and brilliant, you know, food part of a major city. And I get my question for you, and I'd love to have this offline in a greater detail, but I think others might be interested. How has it been working with your local chamber of commerce in Denver as you're having these conversations? Um, when you start to think about, you know, re, like you're you're rebuilding a community, basically. Um, have you found that your like your local chambers have been pretty vocal and involved in, in what this looks like? Um, I've I've actually found outside of Denver, the local chambers have been way more involved trying to incentivize restaurants to look in Aurora or, or Wheat Ridge or Westminster. Um, but just the, the demand for for restaurants in downtown Denver is is so high already. Um, are, are you talking more about like incentives for local organizations to help with build out on the front end and, and attract them to go to their city? Or, yeah, or just yeah. like how how like in part of the conversation they're having in like the fabric of what what Denver is going to look like in five to 10 years, um, you know, as you know, the Chamber of Commerce as, that are essentially the gatekeepers of tourism um, and, and how they're impacting what what the community is is starting to look like. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a good question. Um I I definitely have, like I said, experienced some some local chambers and cities outside of Denver who've given some great incentives to to draw restaurants there and and really gave um, some some generous money up front to help build out the restaurants in, in Denver. You know, the I, I guess the biggest problem is just that the you know the the landlords downtown. Or for the most part, big um, big REITs out of out of California or, or New York, and and it's 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 less kind of local mom pop landlords downtown, and you know it's it's their choice at the end of the day what they want to do with the real estate and who they want to lease it to. And L, something uh, we'll get, uh, I like this, we'll have an offline conversation with Zach because one of the models, and Zach does a lot of work with with breweries as. as as Mimi mentioned in the intro is breweries have created a model that I'm thinking about all the time for restaurants where a lot of these like dilapidated towns, rust belt towns, these forgotten lost towns have created those incentives to create that watering hole as an epicenter of commerce and culture. Once again, in those small communities. And so I think restaurants can start to think about that. There's also some models where I've seen some prospectus for small towns in the middle of Kansas to get tech companies there. And food and culture and hospitality are a big driver of those. So there's a couple grassroots models that are happening in smaller communities that are needing to be dynamic and forward thinking. Whereas some of those, those classic downtown corridors 
have have been resistant to that because they were able to get themselves in boom times to those 42 to $55 a square foot triple net and cashing in on that. And then because they are those bigger groups, if they, if they have a loss, you see those locations that are prime locations stay empty for far too long because they'd rather write it off as a loss on the tax side because they have so many holdings. Whereas those smaller mom and pa, as, as Zach was talking about, they want to fill that space so they're very creative. And there's some institutional money issues that they face because many landlords in their, their lending have in that contract that they are not allowed to lower rents for any reason and their money is directly tied to that so there's some institutional issues at play so i think we should definitely it's, offline talk about that yeah for sure. it's, it's also difficult when the institutional landlords own the whole block because right they know that if they settle on on one deal then they're going to set a new standard for the rent and they'd rather kind of wait for their deal and you know they have the bandwidth to let that space sit vacant for a couple of years where a mom pop landlord wouldn't. Um, and it's, it's also an interesting conversation, what Jensen's getting at with the, with the brewery model, how, you know, there used to be these huge, um, huge breweries who would transition their model as, as downtown real estate got so much more expensive. They would find a um, industrial facility to brew their beer. And then they would have a smaller tap room where they're paying that, $50 a square foot triple net rent. But then there's also the kind of counter to it that if you're not brewing your beer at the same location, could you even call it a brewery? If you don't walk in, you see the beer being made, you smell it. And similar to, to restaurants, I have a, a bagel shop who's kind of asking herself that, that same question. She loves that her customers walk in and, and they, they see the, production in front of their eyes they see all the bagels being made and they know they're getting a fresh bagel but because her demand is growing and her production space has to grow so much she's debating if she should separate the two and and move the production to an industrial facility where she's paying a, a much lower rate or would that kind of lose the character of what she's trying to create so it's there's not a good answer for it but it, it's a it's an interesting conversation Oh, my answer would be yes, absolutely. Restaurants with the production facility and the three <laughs> satellite locations that are neighborhood specific that cater that neighborhood versus being a destination. I'm an all in believer in that. We have, we got a lot to talk about on that front. We we are coming up on time and I do want to be respectful of everyone's time and I'm so grateful for this conversation. And once again, uh, if you're listening on the podcast recording of this, please get into Clubhouse so you can be a part of these conversations uh, as well as just the, the community that it builds, the connections that it allows to make. Uh, if you're in the room here, thank you. So grateful for that. Uh, literally, Monty, Michael, Chip, like I have to get like, give me 30 seconds from each of you just because I want to acknowledge the fact that, that you all had something to say. And uh, like I said, I do want to respectful of time. But, but uh, Monty, 30 seconds, what you got for us? Uh, thanks, guys. Um, so uh, there were a couple things that really stuck out to me and everything was great in the modern and everything are great. Um, one of them is when we're talking about people and, and creating and, and treating them like an investment. You know, I, I wrote a, a blog recently where I questioned people instead of um, putting uh, labor on the PL and as a liability, what if you, what would, how would your mindset change if you put them 
on your balance sheet as an asset. And, um, and just talking about, um, you know, building into these people, uh, into our people and developing them and, and, you know, seeing what great things come out of that. So that was one thing that I thought that you guys talked about that was awesome. The other thing is I think the reason why America has a problem with paying for food um, is because we don't treat dining out as a community thing like they do in Europe. You know, everybody lives in a flat and they meet at a pub or a cafe and that's where uh, the third place is. It's not work, it's not home, and that's where people go to uh, socialize. And, and we tend to go back to our house uh, or we just go to a restaurant because we don't feel like cooking and we don't really value the, um, the expression of community and just, uh, you know, engaging in life celebrations uh, like we do in Europe. And so that's something that, um, that really struck me when you guys were talking about that. The last thing is uh, shout out to 868686. Uh, thank you, Ellie and, and Chef Jensen. You guys, uh, you guys made me a professional writer. I've been writing for a couple of years, a blog, and uh, uh, you were kind enough to pick up one of my articles, and uh, I appreciate all that you guys do. Um, Jensen, I know we did a uh, podcast together about a year ago. I, I just love everything you're doing. I'm so uh, proud to be your friend and to see all the things that all of you are doing. You are a paid, published author, my friend. I am grateful for the opportunity to be able to value that story. A great article talking about being the boss that you want to, to work for for your employees. So really great. And absolutely, employee investment model. What I alluded to, changing the P&L, Andrew Parr, who I think is in the audience, is literally changing the composition, the structure of a P&L, so that there's an employee investment bucket of wages, benefits, culture, and education, and our ability to invest in that first, even... If you're opening a new business, set up two bank accounts. The one that is never going to have enough money because everything takes longer, costs more money, and is more difficult than you ever imagined. And the $250,000 that you put in turns into 387 really, really quickly. Put money into your employee investment bank account and never touch it no matter what. Because by the time you start hiring people, there's no money left. And then you start devaluing your most valuable asset. It is a systemic issue in the way that we develop businesses. So make sure you go and do that. Michael, quick, what you got for us? Hey, how you doing? Can you hear me? Sounds good. All right. Uh, yeah, so I, I had a question for you guys. Uh, any of you guys, like, you guys uh, work in a, in a restaurant or? Any, anybody up on stage work in a restaurant? Currently, like as a chef or like, in... I think I think most all of us are post restaurant trying to figure out what to do with the mm -hmm. restaurant that we broke and we need to rebuild. Uh, for all sure. right, yeah, because because I definitely had a question about like uh, what do you guys think uh, like where we're headed with everything. Um, so I still work in fine dining uh, in Midtown, um, and then I transitioned over to working in the hospital. Um, and a lot of the colleagues that I have um, also ended up transitioning to other roles, uh, like desk jobs um, and things like that. Um, so, like, what do, what do you guys uh, see, like, people continuing to, uh, uh, you know, follow the trends and continue in the industry? Or Yeah, anybody? Troy, want to jump in? Uh, Kiana, yeah. I know you see a lot of people moving around. So I currently have 17 brands that we, uh, let's, uh, let's fix that real quick. 
I currently have 17 brands that I'm a part of um, scaling at different phases of their uh, expansion evolution. So I'm in restaurants every day. Um, I can tell you unequivocally, if you're a growing emerging startup brand who puts your people first and your culture out front, um, you're not actually having a problem finding employees because that's where all the employees are going if they are staying in the industry or coming back to the industry. But like I did mention before my robot voice kicked in um, earlier is that 7% of the entire industry left in one month last month. That's an unsustainable model. The 2019 to 2020 uptick of large single to double digit uh, turnover north of 106, the best turnover rate in America on average was fine dining at 106 and QSR was 147, I believe, 143, something like that, percent turnover in a year. So um, no, people are leaving. They're not coming back. They're getting their side hustles. They're getting trained by Google to code. Um, they're, they're flipping uh, products. They're opening e-com stores and launching their own products on TikTok. Uh, why would they work for this industry, which has failed to treat them as a professional and uh, invest in them? And Jensen, if I may, just because I have the mic and I know the room's ending, uh, when my robot voice kicked in, it was really important that I wanted to share a tip, tactical, actual application. Um, I was able to bring uh, Jason Berkowitz, who unfortunately had to leave to the room. He's been here for most of it. Uh, Jason started before the pandemic, an organization called Arrow Up Training. And Arrow Up is a very dynamic, very specific um, uh, training modules, video training uh, modules that you can use for sexual harassment training, you can use for your health certificate training, et cetera. But the videos are made for restaurant people by restaurant people. And it is one of the most unique, most dynamic, and most engaging, yet very um, relatable because of the language and the experiences that we all speak. So he's gone out in the industry and gotten people like you see here on stage and down below to tell their stories in a way that we can all relate to. So Arrow Up Training is new to the market in the last two years, but Jason's been around and launching uh, brands like Takaya Organica and the Gucci Osteria and others um, and, and with a lot of experience and has a huge passion. So if you own or operate a restaurant, um, I met an owner yesterday, doesn't even have an employee handbook, okay? You own uh, five restaurants for 20 years, you don't even have an employee handbook. Like we've got to get real, we've got to treat our people like professionals and we've got to give them the tools and the investment of time and resources to treat them as a professional so they will actually invest back in our uh, operations and our businesses. Thanks. Appreciate the talk, guys. Yeah, Michael. And one last thing. Black Box Intelligence put out a study that 77% uh, said they would come back to this industry if conditions were right. There's a lot of work to get to that point. It's been exposed. The transparency needs to be there. And there is an opportunity because if we create that sense of belonging internally and externally, there's absolutely a chance. We need to turn ourselves into the Google of XYZ industry. That kind of colloquially meant that, you know, you, you'll be able to play ping pong and foosball and, and have a bouncy chair. That's what made sense for tech. Yet what Google did, they branded their culture in a way that made it make sense for the people who wanted that lifestyle, who wanted to be a part of that. Restaurants need to do that because the current narrative for restaurants is everything that we've exposed today. There's absolutely an opportunity. It's going to take a lot of work. And the operators that are employees of choice that are investing in things like Arrow or the, the Chad Project and In the Weeds have the getting out of the weeds training, 
Cha McCoy's lip service, another thing to look into. And we'll, we'll drop these links into the uh, podcast episode. So please go and check that out for some resources additionally on top of the conversation that are doing these things to be able to level us up. So I think that's important. Uh, Chip, let's say, take 30 seconds. Tell us, uh, tell us what we can help with or what's on your radar. And then I want to let all of the speakers let us know the best place to find you so that we can connect with you and continue these conversations offline because I know a lot of people will uh, need the resources, the tutelage, uh, and the services that everyone here provides. But Chip, jump in quick. Chef, thanks so much for having me. Really great room. It was, uh, it was fun to just sit and uh, listen to a lot of this. I'll be short and sweet. When we talk about the future of food and beverage, I think it's impossible to have the conversation without talking about the shifting trends. And it's easy to say that like a buzzword, um, but we're watching huge cataclysmic changes. And I believe over the next 18 months, it's going to be even crazier, if you can believe it, even crazier than what we just passed through. Because as has been said in this room, uh, the model is unsustainable. I mean, Chef, you said early, uh, very early in the room, this model's, uh, you know, half a century old. It's actually two and a half centuries old. The restaurants were invented in the late 1700s. You can look it up uh, outside, you know, in Lyon, in Paris, and, uh, and, and it's gone basically unchanged. And so... As technology uh, injects itself, everything from robotics and AI to table ordering and QR codes and, you know, NFC and, and all of that, right? All of that is a good thing. And we spent a lot of time tonight talking about, um, uh, talking about staffing, right? How do we get staffing? How do we keep staffing? How do we make, you know, how do we make this, a, you know, an appealing place for people to work? And actually the staffing crisis, uh, there are two solutions to it, and they're on both sides of it. Number one, as has been said, as Troy said, as, as many people have said, you've got to fix the culture. You've got to make this a place that people want to work, right? That's the big question, right? Why would pe want, people want to come work for you? Why would people want to come work here? You've got to answer that. And then the opposite side is that, uh, is that right now technology is offering solutions, uh, ways of, uh, of, of really uh, getting rid of certain employees and, uh, or even better, reutilizing uh, the, the humans in, in better ways, reallocating that human capital uh, and actually have them do, uh, do, do better things, more interesting things, more engaging things, right? A, a waiter, half their night is spent uh, either at a table copying down something or over in the corner at the computer regurgitating that into a computer. I think there's a better use of that human being's time, talent, and abilities than just, just copying stuff down and regurgitating. Put them on the floor, in the station, actually exuding hospitality, and we don't make them do the thing that the computers in our pockets can do very easily, more effectively, more efficiently. We're going to cut costs. We're going to increase revenue. That data is already overwhelmingly clear. And over the next 18 months, as restaurants figure all of that out, um, that's, that's what's going to be really exciting to watch. That's it. That's my last word. More than 30 seconds, but I appreciate the space. Thank you, Chip. And uh, again, thanks to everybody. All right, speakers, I want to have you take 15 seconds. Ble best place to connect with you uh, to, to be able to, to kind of get the next generation of what, what all your work on to stay connected. Uh, Kiana, for you, best place to connect with you. Best top two places are my Instagram. It's Kiana, K-I-A-N-A underscore the publicist. And also my website with any inquiries or questions that you may have. And then I also have a blog where I interview other communication leaders in this space. Thanks for everyone's attention. Appreciate that, Kiana. Love everything that you're working on and every conversation we get to have. Michael, for you, best place to connect. Uh, Food Tech Live Club, if you're listening on the podcast, huh. make sure you get over here. Where else, Michael? 
Yeah, head to our website, thespoon.tech. We cover uh, the news of all the innovators in the space. We also put up a post today about how we're uh, taking food tech to CES. CES uh, chose us to help them bring food tech. Uh, it's the first time the food tech is actually going to be featured to CES, and it's the world's biggest tech conference, so we're pretty excited. Glad to hear that. That's a that's a, a big daps to the work that, that you're doing for sure. Uh, Zach, best place to connect with you. Yeah, if anyone has a, a restaurant space we're trying to lease, is looking for a spot or just wants to chat about the industry, happy to talk. Cell phone is 240-671-8258. And my email is Z Citrin C Y T R Y N at broadstreetrealty.com dropping them digits all right zach i like that likes to get likes to get personal appreciate that for sure uh troy best place to connect with you krpusa.com kiwi restaurant partners usa.com and on all social media as kiwi restaurant partners or the nourish brands thanks again jensen great room always an honor absolutely and L for you, best place to connect. Okay, so first of all, I love Zach dropping digits because that is the most real estate thing I've heard all day. Um, and Kiana, you're 100% going to be hearing from me because you are the PR voice that In the Weeds has been looking for. Um, so look out for a note from me. For In the Weeds, we are at, at intheweeds.us on Instagram. Our website is www.intheweeds.us. Um, our email is holler at intheweeds.us, so you can find us on those platforms. Um, lots of resources for hospitality folks, uh, worker-centric, worker-focused on our website. And my everyday community, social media, what I see in real life is at Ellen the Weeds. And Jensen, thank you again for a great conversation. I am here for it for for me, for us, I mentioned the 86-86-86 challenge. We're in the midst of it. It's also going to lay the groundwork for ongoingly being able to have a space for the hospitality industry, human, to be able to express themselves in a multitude of ways. So please, if you're on the being able to share a story side, go to besterpodcast.com. You'll be able to find information on how to be a part of the 86-86 challenge. Uh, if you are on the potential sponsorship side that we can look at investing differently. It's $110 for, for an article to be able to sponsor it. $86 of that goes directly to the person who now knows that we believe in them. That is the value, the worth that we're trying to amplify, amplify Excuse me, at best served. So definitely go and check that out. It also, 5% of that supports In the Weeds and the work that they're doing. And then we take just enough to barely keep the lights on for uh, publishing these articles. But it was so important for us to be able to shift the value proposition that media has. So that's the best place to connect. And I will leave you all once again where I started that quote from William Gibson that motivates and haunts me every single day. The future is already here. It's just not evenly divided. And that is where we come in. All of you come in. We need to distribute that more evenly. We need to make sure that all of us feel the opportunity of the future that's in front of us currently, and that we as a community can manifest for ourselves, for each other, for our businesses. That's it. I appreciate you all. Thank you so much uh, to all the speakers, to everybody listening, and uh, we will end the room at that. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. 
Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.